podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL roundtable feed. So just search EPL roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Tuesday, the 4th of July. Shout out to any American listeners. Hope you're all having a very good Independence Day and enjoying yourself with whatever it is you get up to on this day of celebration of flags and anthems and all that good jargon. Uh, We begin on very sad news today, folks. It's like there's been a death in the family, so to speak. For the two-footed podcast, uh, Duncan Ferguson has been sacked as manager of Forest Green Rovers after just six months in the job. Um, it's not a surprise that he's been sacked, given he was utterly dreadful there. 
but it does take away one of the things I liked to do each week, which was to laugh at Duncan Ferguson. So for the last time, with regards to Forest Green Rovers, 18 games, one win, three draws, 14 defeats, a 5.56% win percentage. That is about as bad a job as anyone has ever done in the history of football management. Uh, For the career, he's at 23 games, two wins, six draws and 15 defeats. So, you know, not great. Uh, An 8.7% win percentage. Uh, I look forward to seeing whether or not Big Dunk secures himself another job as a manager at another unfortunate club who will be drawn in by the fact that you know, he's Duncan Ferguson and he's a big name and he's well known. He's just not a good manager. He just isn't a good manager at all. And any club that hires him deserves utter failure. As simple as that. Right, enough of that. Well, what I thought I was going to do, or what I thought I would do moving forward for the next little while, while we have kind of like the dog days of summer where there's not a whole lot going on. We're waiting on transfers to take place. And it's just easier for me to talk about a bunch of transfers in once than just do them kind of one at a time as they come. I thought we'd do a little bit of a, a nostalgic summer here. Probably some shorter pods, but want to continue to get something out daily, obviously. And I thought, well, I'll go back and I'll start at the start of the Premier League and I'll just go season by season talk about those seasons, some of the characters involved, the players, the teams, the managers, and just, I don't know, not as a history lesson as such, but just a nod to the history of the game and the Premier League and what it is that got us to where we are now. And I thought it would be a a decent way to spend the summer talking about, you know, days gone by some great seasons, some not-so-great seasons, admittedly. But the early days of the Premier League were fantastic because there was great excitement about it because it was the real dawn of what we have now in the modern era. Now, whether you're for that or against that is up to you. But money was really introduced into the game. The Premier League, the breakaway from the Football League, Sky and their involvement and the amount of money that they were pumping into the game now. A lot of fun teams here. This 92-93 season was was a really good jumping off point for the league. So, first thing to note, 22 teams rather than what we have now with 20. That was what they expected to be the standard way. We would have 22 teams, thus every team would play 42 games and make you know, X amount of money based on 42 games. So our teams this season, going alphabetically, Arsenal, Aston Villa, Blackburn Rovers, Chelsea, Coventry, Crystal Palace, Everton, Ipswich, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Middlesbrough, Norwich, Nottingham Forest, Oldham, QPR, Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, Southampton, Tottenham and Wimbledon. So Wimbledon is the one club on that list to start with because they don't exist anymore in that same guise. They were taken over. They were rebranded as MK Dons and moved to Milton Keynes. A move that was wildly unpopular 
a move that has still never fully been explained as to why it was allowed to happen. A move that has led to that club being something of a pariah where nobody likes them. It led to the creation of MK of um, <clears throat> AFC Wimbledon to replace them by the loyal Wimbledon fan base. And that's a club that I think a lot of people have sort of kept an eye on over the years and hoped that would, they would have success because Wimbledon were su- such an odyssey back then. Like, you have to really have been there to understand just how, how unusual this club was. They didn't have their own stadium because Plough Lane wasn't acceptable as a Premier League ground and hadn't really been acceptable as a National League or a, a Football League ground for a couple of seasons. They were this kind of ragtag bunch of footballing cast-offs, some of whom had been plucked from non-league, some who'd worked their way up through the football pyramid, you know, played in the lower leagues, uh, Division 3, Division 2, the old Division 1. Some of them were cast-offs who hadn't made the grade at the, the top clubs. And they were managed by a guy in in... Joe Kinnear, who was a really big personality and a really outspoken manager. Um, Sam Haman was the owner. He was quite an eccentric personality as well. First thing to note about Wimbledon in the first day of the, the first year of the Premier League, no shirt sponsor. Didn't have one. Couldn't find a shirt sponsor for the first season of the Premier League. So they were a really unique club. And unfortunately, they're a club that don't exist in that way anymore but AFC Wimbledon they've done a really good job of replacing them and hopefully someday they can find a way into the upper echelon the championship the Premier League and you know take over the legacy of of what was a a really fun club Um, other club here whose fortunes have not been ideal Oldham currently sit in the National League they finished 12th this past season, so mid-table in the fifth tier of English football when they were in the, the top tier to begin the Premier League era. Mismanagement, bad ownership, just a lot of different problems there at that club over the years. It's such a shame because they were one of the founding members of this this league that we all spend so much time obsessing over. Um, other clubs that have dropped out, out of the division and not been able to find a way back in, obviously Blackburn, Coventry came close this past season, but it's been a long time since we had Coventry in the top flight. Ipswich, they went up, they went down, came back up, went down again, might have had one, one other promotion relegation, but it's been a long time since we had Ipswich up. At Leeds, obviously, have just gone back down after having spent a long time in the lower leagues. Middlesbrough, they've been a bit of a yo-yo team over the lifetime of the Premier League, as have Norwich. Nottingham Forest are back in the division now, which is great, but they spent a lot of time out of it. QPR, fantastic little club. QPR back then were how we view like a Brentford now, like that smaller London club that everybody just sort of, everybody who's not a fan of, you know, Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs and West Ham, kind of threw their support a little bit behind QPR as this smaller club in London trying to survive with all these big clubs around. They've got a fantastic little stadium in Loftus Road. If you've never been, I highly recommend it. Um, And they were a fun team back then. 
who were really good at finding players. Trevor Sinclair, Les Ferdinand, Kevin Gallen, um, Sinnott. Was Andy Sinnott, was that his name? Some really good players there. Really good players over the years. Let me just pull up the QPR squad, actually, while I'm thinking of it, because there was there were a lot of fun to watch. And they were a strong team as well. Like It wasn't like a thing where they were just treading water and trying to stay in the division. They had really good players. Uh, Rufus Brevet, really good left-back. David Bardsley would have a long career. Ian Holloway, most people remember him as a manager, but he was a good player in his own right. Uh, Darren Peacock, very good defender who went on to play for Newcastle. Andy Impey, forgotten about him, really good midfielder. Andy Sinton. Gary Penrice was super talented but always injured. If he could have stayed fit, he probably would have played for England. Ferdinand. Dougie Friedman, probably most recognised with his links to Crystal Palace, obviously. But they were a really good team and they were a lot of fun. There was a lot of fun to be had in that league back then. There was a lot of big characters, and especially among the managers. And the notable thing here with the managers is 22 clubs, season starts with 22 managers. Joe Kinnear is Irish. The other 21 are all from England, Scotland, or Wales. In the season, four of those managers get fired. They get replaced with five managers because one club goes the co-manager route, which is something you just won't see at at this level anymore. And all of the ones who came in were Welsh or English. So to begin the season, we've got George Graham in charge of Arsenal. George Graham is one of the most underrated managers in English football history. Won two league titles with Arsenal won a cup double with Arsenal this season, had already won the League Cup with Arsenal in the 80s, would win the Cup Winners' Cup the following season, would then leave Arsenal under a scandal, the the Bung scandal. You can look that up over players like John Jensen and that. Would go to Leeds, would do well there, would go to Spurs, would do well there, would win a cup. Got fired by Spurs in, I think, 2001. Checked that I think it was 2001 that they fired him uh, after three years in charge. Yeah, he was only he was only 57 and he decided not to manage anymore, which is really really strange. He could have absolutely gotten another Premier League job and done very very well. He was a manager who built his team on a great defense. If you 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 probably if you're if you're old enough like me. If you're really old like me, you'll remember the Arsenal offside trap. If you're younger and you've heard of it, it was George Graham that basically developed that way of playing. This flat back four who would step out in tandem and catch teams offside endlessly. But George Graham also played four really attacking players in his team. So he'd often go with Merson and Limpar as his wingers or David Rowcastle and Limpar in wide areas. And Andreas Limpar is probably the first inverted winger that we had in the Premier League. A right footer playing on the left. Probably the first one that we had in English football. 
in the modern era. Obviously, Steve Highway and others did it in the 70s, and Best did it in the 70s. But in the modern era, Andreas Limper was probably the first who did that, and that was under George Graham. Uh, he was the one that brought Ian Wright to the club, and they had that Ian Wright and Kevin Campbell partnership that was great for them for a number of years. He'd also had Alan Smith, so he had his target man there that he could use as well. But, yeah, he was a really good manager, really good personality. Snippy when he needed to be with the media, but very highly respected. Very good friends with Ferguson at the time, and they were kind of the two big rivals, but they were very close. Uh, Ron Atkinson at Aston Villa, another huge personality. Obviously, some very unfortunate views on the world, which ended his TV career and meant that he was never going to get another managerial gig. But, you know, Big Ron, again, was someone that had managed around. Kettering, Cambridge, West Brom was there for the great West Brom team. Um, Cyril Regis, Laurie Cunningham, Brendan Batson. Just fantastic what, what they accomplished together. Got the Manchester United job, didn't work out, went back to West Brom, then went to Atletico Madrid, Sheffield Wednesday, Villa, Coventry, Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday again, and then had a quiet spell at um, at Nottingham Forest. But again, he was pretty much done by 60 as a manager and probably should have been done a little bit earlier in truth. But <clears throat> yeah, Big Ron was a huge personality. Kenny Dugleish was at Blackburn. Um, Chelsea started the season with Ian Porterfield as manager. Bobby Gould was manager of Coventry. Steve Coppola at Crystal Palace. Howard Kendall at Everton. The last Everton manager to win the league was Howard Kendall. Uh, John Lyle at Ipswich. Howard Wilkinson at Leeds, who'd won the league title the year before. Graham Souness was at Liverpool. Peter Reid was at Man City. Obviously, Ferguson was at United. Laurie, Lenny Lawrence was at Middlesbrough. Mike Walker at Norwich. He'd just taken over from David Williams, who'd been caretaker to end the previous season. Brian Clough was still at Nottingham Forest. Like we still have Brian Clough managing at this point. Joe Royal was at Oldham. He would go on to Everton eventually and be the last manager to win the cup, win a trophy there. Jerry Francis and his mullet in charge of QPR. Dave Bassett, for some reason known as Harry. If anyone can ever let me know why he was known as Harry, I'd love to. I'd love to be informed on that. Uh, he was at Sheffield United. He was he was a big personality as well. He was another journeyman manager that was at Wimbledon, was at Watford, Sheffield United, Crystal Palace, Nottingham Forest, Barnsley, a couple of spells at Leicester. Um, not a great manager, but he was he was highly respected. Uh, Trevor Francis, formerly great midfielder, was at Sheffield Wednesday. Ian Branfoot was at Southampton. Peter Shreves began the season. Did he? No, I'm wrong. Spurs started the season with with co-managers, Doug Livermore and Ray Clements as co-managers. So again, that's an anomaly that you would start the season with co-managers and then Joe Kinnear. Um, Ian Porterfield would be sacked by Chelsea during the season. The only manager sacked this season was Ian Porterfield of Chelsea. So there you go, 22 teams only one of them changed manager during the season. David Webb 
was appointed caretaker manager of Chelsea in February and would see out the season. But other than that, 21 managers saw out the season, which is such an unusual thing. Not one kit made by Nike in the entire league. Arsenal had Adidas, as did Liverpool. Admiral, Admiral, made Wimbledon, Southampton, Middlesbrough. Yeah, those three. Asics had Blackburn. Ribeiro, who I don't remember, made Norwich's kit. A company called Brooks Running made QPR's kit. And then Umbro had had Spurs, Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, Oldham, Forest, Manchester United, Manchester City, Ipswich, Everton, Chelsea, and Aston Villa. Umbro were the big manufacturer in the first year of the league. Bukta, who I don't remember, um, they made Crystal Palace's kit to begin the season and then Ribeiro took over in December. I assume something funky happened there. Uh, they also made Coventry's kit. So Ribeiro had three. Umbro had most of the league. Umbro. Like, imagine that now, where Umbro, Ribeiro and Admiral, Admiral are the biggest kit manufacturers. If you even look at... Who was sponsoring front of shirt? You had JVC for Arsenal. Mita Copiers, some small Japanese company, was Aston Villa's sponsor. Fison's, a um, um, multinational pharmaceutical company, sponsored Ipswich. Brother Industries, remember them? They were Man City sponsors. United had Sharp. Middlesbrough had Imperial Chemical Industries. Uh, Norwich City were sponsored by Norwich and Peterborough Building Society. Nottingham Forest had two sponsors. So Shipstones, which was a local brewery, sponsored the home kit. And Labatt's, which was a Canadian brewery, sponsored the away kit. So imagine having that now. Different sponsorship on home and away. I wonder, is that would that be legal now? JD Sports sponsored Oldham. Classic FM sponsored QPR. Draper Tools for Southampton. Sanderson, don't remember what they did. They were Sheffield Wednesday and and Wimbledon didn't have a sponsor. It's just so different. It's so removed from what we experience now with the league and these massive companies paying huge amounts to be front of shirt sponsors. The season ended with... Manchester United winning the league, 84 points, 10 points clear of Aston Villa. This was United's first title since the 60s. Norwich finished third on 72. Blackburn were fourth on 71. Blackburn were newly promoted, it's worth pointing out. But they had loads of money behind them. QPR finished fifth, 63 points. Then Liverpool uh, sorry, QPR finished fifth, Liverpool finished sixth, Sheffield Wednesday seventh, Spurs eight, 
Liverpool, Wednesday and Spurs all at level on points. Manchester City finished ninth. Arsenal finished 10th. Chelsea 11th. Wimbledon 12th. Everton 13th. Sheffield United, Coventry and Ipswich all level on points. Goal difference separating them between 14th and 16th. Then it was Leeds, Southampton, Oldham. And then relegated, we had Crystal Palace, Middlesbrough, and Nottingham Forest. So those were the three teams that went down in the first season of the Premier League. If we look at even the stadiums from that year, Arsenal were still playing at Highbury. It's gone. Villa were at Villa Park. Blackburn were at Ewood Park. Chelsea were at Stamford Bridge, but that Stamford Bridge doesn't exist anymore. That has been built on hugely. That stadium looked completely different at the time. Uh, Coventry played at Highfield Road. That's gone. Crystal Palace played at Selhurst Park. They're still there. Everton were at Goodison. They're there for now. Ipswich were at Portman Road. They're there for now. Leeds were at Elland Road. Liverpool were at Anfield. City were at Main Road. Long gone. United were at Old Trafford. Middlesbrough were at Ayrson Park. Long gone. Norwich, Nottingham Forest, Oldham, QPR, the two Sheffield clubs, all still at the same stadiums they were back then. Uh, Ayrson Park, Carrow Road. No, sorry. Carrow uh, Road, City Ground, Boundary Park, Loftus Road, Bramall Lane and Hillsborough, all still using those stadiums. Um... Southampton were at the Dell. If you don't remember the Dell, it had a weird end where it looked like they sort of ran out of money, but they actually ran out of space behind and the stand sort of tapered into like three rows at one point. Spurs were at White Hart Lane and obviously it's gone. And Wimbledon were playing at Selhurst Park in a ground share. Which was, again, it's not something that we see in the Premier League anymore. This was a really fun season because... There was so much hype around it. The games were more readily televised than they had been in previous years. You didn't see as much of the of the, the top flight games prior to that because of how the TV deals were done. Uh, Teddy Sheringham finished the season as top scorer in the league. He started the year with Nottingham Forest and moved on to, to Tottenham. Les Ferdinand was second with 20. For, uh, Sheringham with 22. Ferdinand had 20. Dean Holdsworth had 19. Dean Holdsworth was a like really good goal-scoring striker for Wimbledon. Back then, that's what I mean about Wimbledon. Like This was a good team. QPR was a good team. They had lads scoring 19 and 20 goals a season. Mickey Quinn got 17 for Coventry. Shearer and David White got 16 each for Blackburn and Man City. And then you had seven players on 15. Chris Armstrong of Palace, Eric Cantona, first of Leeds and then Manchester United, Brian Dean with Sheffield United, Mark Hughes at Manchester United, Matt Letizia at Southampton, Mark Robbins at Norwich and Ian Wright of Arsenal. Cantona, Robbins, John Hendry, Andy Sinton, Brian Dean, Sheringham, Gordon Strachan, Les Ferdinand, Chris Bart-Williams, who was a good player for Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, uh, Ferdinand again, Chris Sutton, who was at Norwich at the time, Mark Walters of Liverpool, 
Rod Wallace, who was at Leeds, and Letizia again all scored hat-tricks. Cantona had the most assists with 16. Darren Anderton, Letizia and Niall Quinn of Manchester City all had second most with 11. Dean and Wilcox had 10 each. So Brian Dean had 15 goals and 10 assists, as did Letizia had 15 and 11. Cantona had 15 and 16. That's fairly impressive stuff. Uh, Jason Dizel, Rick Holden of Man City, Lee Sharp, Sheringham, Andy Sinton, and Ian Wone all had nine goals. Uh, sorry, nine assists each. Paul McGrath was the PFA Players Player of the Year. It was absolutely sensational for Aston Villa that year. Paul Ince was second. Alan Shearer was third. Ryan Giggs was Young Player of the Year, and rightly so. The Football Writers Association chose Chris Waddle as its Footballer of the Year, which was a poor choice. Chris Waddle was really good, and he'd come back to England having been at Marseille, but he didn't deserve to win Footballer of the Year. Uh, McGrath was second, and Giggs finished third, and it was odd that Giggs was third. Um, he wasn't he wasn't in that, that mix at the time. Um, the PFA Team of the Year, which we'll get up now. PFA Team of the Year. Let's see now. We had Peter Schmeichel in goal. Uh, David Bardsley at right back. Tony DiRigo at left back. Paul McGrath and Gary Pallister as the two centre-backs. Roy Keane of Nottingham Forest at the time was picked in midfield with Gary Speed, Paul Ince and Ryan Giggs. And then Shearer and Ian Wright were up front. So Chris Waddle, Football Writers Footballer of the Year, not picked in the PFA Team of the Year, which kind of says he shouldn't really have won that award. Um... In the League Cup that year, Arsenal would win, beating Sheffield Wednesday in the final, 2-1. Paul Merson and John Morrow with the goals. Wednesday had gone one up. John Harks had scored on eight minutes. Merson equalised on 20. Morrow scored on 68. In the celebrations afterwards, Morrow was on Tony Adams' shoulders and slipped and fell and broke his collarbone. And the greatest moment of his career was cut short and he would miss the rest of the season. In the FA Cup that year, Arsenal once again beat Sheffield Wednesday. This time it took a replay. In the first game, Ian Wright put Arsenal one up and David Hurst equalised to send it to a replay. In the replay, Ian Wright again put Arsenal one up. Chris Waddle equalised this time. It went to extra time. It looked like it was destined for, I don't know if it was another replay. I think it was another replay. I don't think it was penalties back then. And Andy Linnigan scored the winner in the 119th minute again for him. Absolutely the highlight of his career. He was one of those solid journeyman centre-backs that had you know, kind of a career up and down the divisions. Uh, Hartlepool, Leeds, Oldham, Norwich, Arsenal, Crystal Palace, QPR, Oxford, and then St Albans City to retire at near 40. 
he was a backup player for Arsenal who has this moment of winning them an FA Cup and no one will ever take that away from him. Um, this was a fun season. It just was. I was I was young, was a kid, but you could remember the excitement about it, talking about it with your friends, seeing the games at the weekend, watching match the day and all the different highlights. But it's such a different world to what we see now. 22 managers and an Irish guy is the foreigner. 22 captains, not a foreign player among them. Mike Milligan of Oldham, Alan Kernahan of Middlesbrough, Terry Phelan of Manchester City and Andy Townsend of Chelsea were, again, the foreign captains as four Irish lads. You had a Northern Irish captain in Alan MacDonald of QPR. You had two Scottish captains, John Wark at Ipswich and Gordon Strachan at Leeds. Near a Welsh captain to be found and all the rest of the captains were English. So you had the majority of the managers and the majority of the players were English. And that's just not the case anymore. Not the case at all. We've been through the kit manufacturers and how different that is now where we see Nike, Nike and we see Adidas and we see Puma, you know, and we see all these different companies coming in. And back then it was Umbral, Rebaro, Admiral, two with Adidas, one with Asics, one with Brooks running. Just such a different league. But that is the foundation of what we see today. And when you look at the players and go through some of the players that time, look at that PFA team of the year. Schmeichel in the running for the best keeper the Premier League has ever had. Paul McGrath in the running for one, for the best centre-back the league has ever had. Gary Pallister, who's f- criminally underrated. Criminally underrated. Like, put it this way. Roy Keane and Gary Neville, when picking their all-time United team from when they started playing up until the modern day, they picked Gary Pallister. They didn't pick Rio Ferdinand. They didn't pick Nemanja Vidic. They picked Gary Pallister and Yapstam. Midfield, you had Keane, maybe the greatest midfield of the league has seen. Ince was very good. Giggs, 13 league titles. That's never getting touched. Shearer is the greatest goal scorer in league history. Ian Wright, another one of the best strikers we've ever seen. And Gary Speed, who was a fantastic player for a long, long time. Just so many good players, so much fun. And it was only going to get better. You could tell it was going to get better. As there was more money coming in, there was higher caliber players coming in. Yeah, what a great time. Right. Tomorrow, 93, 94. Let me know if this is something you want me to pursue. If it's not, we'll change and we'll go and we'll do something else. But for now, this is what I want to do. I want to talk about these. I want to talk about these games, this this time, you know, these rivalries. Liverpool Arsenal was such a prominent rivalry back then. United Leeds was such a prominent rivalry back then. City versus United. Before City went through their relegations and whatever else, it was a prominent thing. United would could be the best team in the league, but City could upset them. Same thing with with Liverpool and Everton. Liverpool were a much better team, but Everton could could upset them any year. You know, you had the two Sheffield clubs in the league. It was great to have. 
So you had multiple cities with these rivalries, with two teams in the division. And it was a lot of fun. It was an awful lot of fun. Right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to just do the gossip and be done. Right, welcome back. So, ahead of England's Euro Under-21 Championship semi-final against Israel, Lee Carsley has said his team are not the favourites. I'm not sure who he's lying to, whether it's himself or other people, but you had better believe that they are the favourites to get through, having comfortably beaten Israel the first time they played. Uh, ben Brierton-Diaz has completed his move to Villarreal. Steven Gerrard has been named manager of Saudi Pro League Al Etifak. Best of luck to him. Nathan Collins has completed a £23 million move to Brentford. We'll review that one a bit more in depth. Um, maybe next Monday. Might start doing that on a Monday. Um, Kyogo has signed a new contract at Celtic. New four-year deal. Says he is excited to help defend their three domestic trophies. He has 54 goals in 83 games since joining. I'm delighted he's managed to stay because it looked like Brendan was going to try and move out the whole team. It looks like Lyle Abada could get moved on. Could be going to Sporting. We've just seen Jota leave. These are moves that upset me, Brendan. Why are you trying to upset me? I've been nice, Brendan. I have. I've been nice about it. I'm not happy that you're there, but I've been nice about it. Uh, Bayern Munich are planning. Bayern Munich are planning a second offer to Tottenham for Harry Kane. I think he's going to go. I do. I think he's going to go to Harry, to, to Bayern. I think it's the move that makes sense. They're not going to sell him to an English club. Simple as that. They won't sell him to an English club. I think they'd rather lose him for free. I don't think Levy can take the PR hit of selling him to Spurs or to, to Chelsea or United. I don't. I think everybody would ex- accept if he went to Bayern. Manchester City are preparing their opening bid for Josco Gvardiol. It looks like it could be 86 to 90 million, which is a bit mad. Um, England midfielder Jordan Henderson and Pierre and, and Chelsea's Gabon striker Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang are two possible signings being lined up by Steven Gerrard for his new Saudi club. Um, I I had a bit of fun a bit with this on Twitter last night, but there's just no way Henderson would go. Um, Paris Saint-Germain are pushing to beat Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester City to the signing of Gabri Viega. It, it looks like all the other clubs have moved on to do other things. So yeah, crack on. Chelsea have had held talks with Southampton over a deal for Tino Livermento. Southampton value him at 38 million. Now, I believe Chelsea have a 50% sell-on clause there. So could they then get him for 19 million? Is that how that will work? Probably is. Uh, he'd be a really good get for Chelsea to bring in as a backup to Reese James. But the problem is they bought Malo Gusto to do that. So I, I don't think there's any truth in that move. I really don't. Liverpool have moved ahead of Chelsea in the race for Romeo Lavia. I think that deal is going to get done quite quickly. Uh, Arsenal are ready to make a move for Lavia once they conclude a deal to bring in Declan Rice. I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I think I think Arsenal are posturing because I think they've overextended themselves. Manchester United are close to completing Marcus Rashford's new contract and will then focus on a forward with either Randall Colomuani 
or Rasmus Hoysland being the top target. Now, Hoysland is raw, but hugely talented. But Atalanta want a huge fee. Uh, Muani is very versatile, very well-rounded. Not a great goal scorer, but really good at, as a team player, but massively overpriced. Now, that's a £40 million player, and they're looking for £100 million? That's mental. Uh, Al-Nazir have made a lucrative offer to Andre Onana. This will become problematic for European clubs if the Saudis do start just plucking players in their mid-20s. Nothing to stop them doing it. But I, I, I think that's a bit of an odd... It would be an odd move for him. Um, Arsenal and Switzerland have agreed a... Sorry, Arsenal and Switzerland. Arsenal and Bayer Leverkusen have agreed a deal for Granit Xhaka. Swiss midfielder will move for £21 million. That seems very high for a guy with a year left in his contract when the initial price seemed to be £12 million. I think there's something funny going on there. Everton have told Almeria they are interested in meeting El Belil Toure's release clause of €40 million. Euro. Although Fulham could make a move for the Mali Ford if they sell Alexander Mitrovic. Well, Fulham aren't selling Mitrovic. Do Everton have £34.4 million to spend on one player, given how much else they need? Christian Pulisic will turn down a move to Lyon, as he would prefer to join AC Milan. Milan aren't offering anywhere close to the fee. That's the problem there. Newcastle are exploring a potential move for Goncalo Inacio. My guess there would be they're going to play him at left-back if they buy him. Brighton are interested in Mohamed Kudus from Ajax. He would be spectacular in that Brighton team. Liverpool could face competition from Bayern Munich for Kefren Turam. Uh, this turned out to be nonsense, and today it's come out that Liverpool are are moving away from the Turam deal. I think it's a negotiation tactic to get Lille, or to get Nice, rather, to come and play ball, because Nice are being very, very difficult. Tottenham are trying to agree a deal to sign Clement Langley. Why? He's awful. Tottenham are edging closer to signing Mickey van de Ven. That one would make sense. Wolves are open to selling Max Kilman this summer. Then they'll need two centre-backs. Chelsea want to sell Callum Hudson-Odoi with Nottingham Forest among the favourites to sign him. I think that's a deal that would make sense for all parties. Manchester City are willing to offer Atletico Madrid €15 million Euro for 23-year-old Spanish winger Rodrigo Riquelme who spent last season on loan with Girona. Are City willing to do that, or are the City Football Group willing to do that? Uh, Leicester are exploring a move for Manchester City's English defender Callum Doyle. I assume that would be a loan. I don't think City would sell him. So it would make a lot of sense. Uh, Bordeaux expect Josh Madger to leave the club as the English-born striker is now a free agent and has not responded to the offer of a one-year deal. That lad has had some really bad advice in his career. He was doing really well at Sunderland. His agents pushed him to that Bordeaux deal. Now, he's done He's done fairly well last season for Bordeaux, playing in the second division in France. He's had a couple of loans back to England. Neither of them went very well. I think his development just got really badly disrupted by the move. He was He was in scorching form when he left Sunderland. Now, it was League One, but he was still smashing goals in, 15 in, in 24. I expect him to come back and join a championship club, and I, I hope that he'll he'll kick on and find his best level. 
Uh, Theo Walcott has been training with Reading following his departure from Southampton and is close to joining the League One side on a free transfer. Um, am I right in thinking that Reading appointed the former Southampton manager, Ruben Sellers? They did, so that's why that deal would happen. Um, I mean, Theo Walcott is, is mediocre, but League One might be okay for him. Uh, that's it, folks. That's all I've got for today. Thanks, as always. Network.